0: when it feels messy and you feel a little bit scared and you feel a little bit overwhelmed and you feel a little bit discouraged it's probably because you're on the launch point and just remember that this messiness it's normal this is how you're supposed to feel you will build this muscle now today to navigating launch points so that you will continue to do it throughout your life so that your life can be rich and thrilling and satisfying not just now but when you're 80 and 90 years old.
1: Whitney Johnson describes learning as the oxygen for human growth. Whitney is the CEO of Disruption Advisors, a leadership development company, and is one of the 10 leading business thinkers in the world as named by Thinkers50. She's a world-class keynote speaker and an executive coach and advisor to CEOs. Whitney is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, as well as the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller book, Smart Growth, build an A-team, and the critically acclaimed Disrupt
2: Yourself. In this episode, we dive into the concepts in her best-selling book, Disrupt Yourself. And as it turns out, the growth and learning journey that we all embark on many times in our life can be visualized on the S-curve of learning. Tune in to this week's episode to learn more about the three phases of the S-curve of learning and how you can use it to disrupt your career for growth. Enjoy! Hi! Hi! This is Janice. And I'm Sarah N.
1: And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional.
2: Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally.
1: Hi, Whitney. Welcome to the Explore This podcast. I believe you're dialing in from Virginia, USA to chat with us today. And we've been following your work for a while now, so we're really excited that we get to speak to you today. Hi, Janice. I'm happy to be here. So we want to kick off with this question for you, Whitney. Just dialing back the clock a little bit on your career. You started your career on Wall Street and then eventually went on to become an award-winning Wall Street stock analyst. And among many other subsequent ventures that followed, such as producing a TV show, writing a children's book, and you also co-founded a hedge fund. Very, very colourful career trajectory, but we are so curious to find out What inspired you to apply your understanding of momentum and growth in stocks to then into the business of people?
0: Mm. Great question. So as you mentioned, I worked as an equity analyst on Wall Street. And one of the seminal or formative experiences for me or game-changing experiences, I would say, is it's the early 2000s. And um, I'm working as an analyst covering the emerging markets, telecom and media, And I was responsible for doing a training for my colleagues, all of my equity analyst colleagues. And as I was preparing for this training, it was about the time that Tom Peters had written an article called A Brand Called You. So this idea of personal branding was really starting to emerge. It was also the apex or the zenith of American Idol around the world. And so I was really intrigued by this idea of if you as an analyst were a brand, what would your brand be? Um, so on American Idol, they had things like the Comeback Kid or the Diva. And as I was thinking about equity analysts, you could be the forensic analyst, you could be the earnings estimate, you could be the great stock picker, you could be the person who knows the management, etc. So here we are doing this training meeting, and I am spending an inordinate amount of time on this training, absolutely fascinated by this process. And that was really this, this notion of, huh, I'm doing all of this work, I'm really not getting paid to do this work. And yet I am finding this notion of, you know, how do you make a person a buy um, from a brand perspective. And so that was the really beginning of me recognizing I am more interested in the momentum of people than I am of stocks. Now, it took a while for me to actually transition to do anything about that, because this is 2004, and I didn't really transition, transition till 2012. But that was really the beginning of that idea of, I want to focus on people.
2: Thank you for sharing the impetus and driving force behind that, you know, spark that you encountered in your profession before that as a Wall Street stock analyst. And for today's episode, Whitney, you know, we are here to speak to you about disrupting your career for growth. And this word disruption, it's been thrown around a lot, disruption, mm-hmm. innovation, in fact, and i love to kickstart by just asking you, is this a word that we can use interchangeably, disruption, innovation? How should we be thinking about it?
0: Well, for me, the genesis of how I think about disruption has its roots in the work that I did with Clayton Christensen. So um, 2004, around that time, I also came across his book called The Innovator's Dilemma. So there was sort of this great awakening for me that was happening around this time period. And for people who are not familiar, he's really the father of this idea of disruptive innovation. And I was fascinated because as an equity analyst, I recognized that Every single quarter, I was projecting what wireless penetration was going to be in Latin America. And every single quarter, my estimates were too low. And as I was casting about trying to understand why are they too low, I came across the innovator's dilemma and realized, oh, wireless is disrupting wireline. Yes, it is true that the wireless phone, the coverage, the sound isn't very good, but eventually the sound quality will get better. And right now, bad sound is better than no sound. And so wireless was disrupting wireline. Fascinated by this, I now had this explanatory mechanism for what was going on in the emerging markets with my financial models. But as I studied his work, and you're going to start to notice this theme, is I discovered and had this aha that Disruption isn't just products and services and companies and even countries. You're in APAC, you've seen a number of countries be very disruptive in a very positive way. But it's really about people that that companies don't disrupt, people do. So I was focused on the momentum of people, not of stocks, and then had this aha that if you're going to disrupt as an organization, it begins with the individual. And so that was this big aha that I had. I wrote an article called Disrupt Yourself in the Harvard Business Review, which really took me on this trajectory of how do we use this this framework of disruption to help people recognize that if you're going to innovate in your organization, if you're going to transform as an organization or transform an industry, it's got to begin with you personally disrupting yourself, probably with your mindset to start. But there is a disruption that takes place internally that makes this disruption writ large possible.
2: Mhm mhm well whitney then this word disruption has i would say many different nuances and connotations to it and it in fact can be viewed both positively or negatively and mm-hmm. as you've already alluded to you know initially in the early days it was often t- thought of in the context of companies organizations product solutions or even disruption of the market but now we're talking about disrupting ourselves so you know How would you define that? And more importantly, why is this even important to us and our listeners? Why is it important to think about disrupting ourselves for professional and personal growth?
0: Mm, I love that idea. Okay, so when you think about disrupting yourself, what's happening? If you think about it from a model standpoint. you can see my hands, but if you're listening and you can't see my hands to think about a piece of graph paper and um, there's the y-axis of of success and the x-axis of time. And when you're disrupting yourself, what are you doing? You are making the decision to say, all right, I may be at a 12 on the y-axis of success. However I'm defining success and we all have different definitions of success. And as of today, My trajectory on the graph paper of my existence is, let's call it over one, up one, over one, up one. It's not a bad trajectory. In fact, it might be a perfectly fine trajectory. But when you make the decision to disrupt yourself, what you're doing is you're moving down that y axis of success, much like you would when you make a capital investment as a company. You're investing in, in the future. You move down that y axis of success from a 12 to a 10, for example. Because you believe that by doing so, by disrupting yourself, by stepping back from who you are today, the trajectory will be the slope of your line will go from over one up one to over one up two or over one up four. So mechanically, that is what is happening when you're disrupting yourself. And the reason that you do that is that if you think about your life, and this goes really to to the heart of, I think, the work that the two of you are doing, is that if you think about your life it may be just fine, but you've got these jobs that you're trying to get done. There's always the functional job of you're making plenty of money, you're putting food on the table, but there's this emotional job. And if you're at that 12 on the y-axis of success, it may be that this emotional job isn't being done anymore. You're not learning at the same rate. And perhaps more importantly, there's this sense of There's more for me to do on this planet and I'm not going to be able to do it where I am right now. So I have to step back from where I am today, possibly step back from pay, prestige, from comfort because I'm very good at what I'm doing because I believe that I will be happier. I believe that I will be able to do and contribute in a way, in a more meaningful way and really accomplish what I was meant to do on this planet because I'm willing to take a step back so that I can slingshot forward over time. With all the benefits that
1: you have laid out and very convincingly as well, why do you think so many people are afraid then to take that, you know, to take that step to disrupt themselves?
0: Because it's really terrifying. <laughs> so what I would say is if you think about this, um, when you're on the top of a mountain, you're saying, okay, I'm on the top of the mountain. I'm a great attorney. I'm a great litigator as you were, Janice. You're able to say, I'm good at this. I'm very comfortable with this. I'm confident at this. People are coming to me they're paying me well to do this. I feel the sense of, of accomplishment and expertise and capacity. And when you think about disrupting yourself, what you're basically doing is you're saying, you know what, I'm going to leave this mountain and I'm going to go to the bottom of a new mountain. I might be even jumping. I might be parachuting to the bottom of this new mountain. And so what that does is that evokes all sorts of feelings of of fear. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how to do this. I'm probably going to feel incompetent. I don't know what the future will bring. There's something called loss aversion theory, is that we're more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain. And so as we're thinking about being on top of this mountain, we think, oh, well, I'm going to gain something new if I disrupt myself. I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to have a new career. But that means I have to lose a lot of things. I might not like what I have, but I'm still going to lose it. And I don't want to lose that. And so it elicits all sorts of feelings of discomfort. And so, even though we are feeling like we need something new because it's scary, we, and that's where this dilemma comes in, right? You know, there's more for you to do on the planet, but it requires you to walk into your fear in order to get to doing more that you feel like you need to do on the planet.
1: Super well said. And honestly, I couldn't agree more. You know, I resonate with all the feelings of fear, all the uncertainty, even the sunk cost dilemma. We invested so much into this, and now I'm kind of throwing it away. All these, you know, concerns that you've mentioned, absolutely spot on. And on that note, you know, you have actually mentioned that personal disruption is a process of deliberate self innovation, and I really really love that quote. We want to actually ask you if you could share with our audience, perhaps a personal story of how you have recently disrupted yourself and what you learned from the experience.
0: Um, Yeah, I have a really recent story. So last month, I love to ski. And so I had gone skiing in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and um, I fell. I fell on my shoulder and I fractured my shoulder. And one of the things that I started to do at the very, you know, right after it happened is I said, well, maybe I shouldn't be skiing anymore. And and my co-founder, Amy Humble at Disruption Advisor said to me, really, that's the conclusion that you're going to draw is that you fell. So you're not going to ski anymore. And the more I thought about it, I realized, you know, that's exactly the challenge that each one of us have. All the time. So I lost my job, I'm not going to, you know, ever go after a new job again, or, you know, I messed up on this speech, I'm not going to give a speech again, or I messed up on this project, or I I bungled this conversation that I needed to have with this person, oh, I'm not going to have conversations with people anymore. So when you start to look at it in that light it starts to become very stark of that is the wrong conclusion. And so one of the things that I needed to do to disrupt myself, as I said earlier, if you're going to disrupt as an organization, you have to start by disrupting your mindset. I had to step back and say, what is the right conclusion here? Well, the right conclusion is, is that I really love to ski. And so I want to continue skiing. So what do I need to do to learn how to fall? Do I need to go work with a martial artist? Do I need to go out with a friend who's a ski patrol who offered to teach me how to fall so that I can enjoy this process of skiing, but I can maybe do it a little bit more gracefully because I know how to fall. I know how to go with the fall and then get back up. Obviously, there are all sorts of metaphors here, but I think this was a great example, real time, of me having to say, All right, I talk about personal disruption am I going to disrupt my mindset around, I fell, what conclusion am I going to draw? Is that I'm not going to ski or is it I'm going to learn how to fall so that I can continue to ski and be willing to take the risk that I might break a bone again, but it's something that's worth doing to me. And so I will continue to do it. So that's a real-time example of me maybe having been disrupted but then in order to move through the disruption, I had to disrupt myself, or I i would say I'm in the process of disrupting myself and my mindset around this situation so that I can move forward.
2: Whitney, I have to say, we all need friends like Amy who... Drops truth bombs to us Mm -hmm. when we least want to hear it. But I can absolutely resonate with your example, your real life and very recent example of skiing. I mean, a more personal example is I also learned to ski last December in Norway. And I Mm. remember having the exact same thought process like you did. And it went something like this it started with me thinking, how do I ski and make sure that the goal is I don't fall? that's how it started. And then I realized that, hey, that shouldn't be the way my mindset is wired. You know, I should rewire it to think that it's absolutely okay to fall and it is part of the process. But how am I learning to enjoy the fall? Obviously, hoping that it's nothing too terrible or too nasty of a fall. But, you know, to make sure that I still enjoy that process of learning because I enjoyed being on the slopes. So Mm -hmm. very much I resonated with your example. And you know, Whitney, on that note, because you talk a lot about the S-curve of learning, and that's something that you write extensively and speak extensively about. And, you know, this idea of the S-curve, it it actually originated and was introduced by Everett Rogers back in the 1960s. And it describes the process of formation and growth as innovations reach maturity. But for yourself and this very personal idea of S-curve of learning, we would love if you could shed some light on the three phases of this S-curve of learning and how it relates to disrupting ourselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so so first of all, we love the number three. So um, this idea of more interested in the momentum of people than of stocks, disrupt yourself. So it's applying to individuals, not products. And the S-curve, similar thing happened where I was investing alongside Clay Christensen at the Disruptive Innovation Fund. And we were using the S-curve that you just described of Everett Rogers to figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. And then I had this aha that we could use the S-curve to help us understand how we learn and how we grow. So it wasn't just about how groups change over time, but how an individual changes. And so the three phases of the curve are there's the launch point, the sweet spot and the mastery phase and what's happening in your brain. And so the reason I love this, because this allows us to think about when you're disrupting yourself, you can use this S curve to help you manage the emotional part of disruption. Here's what it looks like at the launch point. Your brain is making a prediction about what it's going to take for you to move to the top of the curve. It's running this predictive model and many of its predictions are inaccurate. And so dopamine, the chemical messenger of delight, it is going to drop. And so you're going to have those feelings of being overwhelmed, of being scared, Um, You're thrilled, but you're also terrified. You might feel like an imposter. You may feel impatient. How come I can't figure this out faster? And so it just doesn't feel very good. In fact, it feels downright lousy a lot of the time. And what's interesting about this launch point place is that we think that growth isn't happening, but in fact, it's happening very fast. If you look at the math behind it, growth is happening very quickly, but because it's not yet apparent, we can't see any real markers of progress it feels very slow. And so that's the launch point of the curve. And it helps you understand that when you're doing something new, like figuring out how to fall or starting a new job or starting a new career, that that experience that you're having of feeling overwhelmed, it is normal. This is exactly how you're supposed to feel. And it now gives you a language to talk about with your team, with your colleagues, whenever you're doing something new and people are like, oh I, oh, I feel out of my depth, we can say, I'm on the launch point. Oh, yeah, that's right. This is how you're supposed to feel right now. So then there's the next phase, which is a sweet spot. And that's a steep, sleek back of that curve. And what happens there is that as you put in the effort at the launch point, and you decide this actually is a curve that I want to be on your predictions are going to become increasingly accurate. So the dopamine starts to spike and you have these emotional upside surprises. And you've tipped into the sweet spot, that that tipping point that Malcolm Gladwell popularized. And what's happening in the sweet spot is you feel the sense of autonomy. You feel the sense of competence and it feels absolutely exhilarating. You feel like you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And here growth is not only fast, it feels fast. It just Feels good to you. So that's the sweet spot. That's that place of flow that we often talk about. That's the second phase. So you've got the launch point, you've got the sweet spot. And then there's mastery. And mastery is the top of the curve. And this is a very interesting place because what's happening here is your predictions are now actually very accurate. Um, but because they're very accurate, you're not getting very much dopamine. You're not learning very much. And so this brings us to where we started the conversation is you now are recognizing that growth is in fact slow. And this is where that dilemma comes in because you like being on top of the curve. You like to be master of all that you survey. You like feeling like you've got capacity, but because you're not getting dopamine because learning is the oxygen of human growth and you're at the top of this mountain. So you're not getting a lot of oxygen right now. And because you feel that there's more for you to do on this planet, you're going to have to make that decision. And if you don't make the decision, it'll probably happen for you. Your plateau will become a precipice. But the way you stay in peak performance throughout your career is when you're at the top of that curve, you make the decision to walk straight into that dilemma and you either move to a new curve, you keep climbing or find a way to push yourself back into the sweet spot of the curve. So that's the launch point, the sweet spot, mastery. You're In launch point, you feel overwhelmed. In sweet spot, you feel exhilarated. And in mastery, you feel like you know what you're doing, but you're a little bit bored. And so it's time for you to move to something new so that you can continue to grow.
2: It's so fascinating to think about this S-curve concept from a personal perspective, because I think I can resonate with it on different levels mm-hmm. of being at the launch point, having done career pivots, you know, for Janice and myself, having to refigure out. You know, by bringing ourselves into the workforce, into the corporate world, which was a new place from our previous lives as litigators, kind of figuring out if we're both at the sweet spot now. So perhaps, Whitney, would love to hear and understand a little bit more. And if you could share, how can we think of applying this theory of the S-curve of learning For audiences like Janice and myself, you know, we're mid-level career professionals around about three years in an organization, having done a career pivot, as most of our listeners are as well. And we're Mm -hmm. looking for growth opportunities. So we're not exactly at the launch stage, neither are we at Mastery. How should Mm -hmm. we be thinking and applying this theory of the S-curve of learning?
0: Mm. Oh, what a great question. All right. So first of all, What I would say is that what you will find, I think, as you observe your life and for you who are listening, that one of the greatest predictors of longevity in an organization is growth upside. Do you perceive that there is an opportunity for you to continue to grow? And if you do, you will stay. And if you don't, you will go. And I think that's a very simple litmus test for an individual. Um, In terms of navigating your career, one of the things that I would say is that if you go to actually our book, Smart Growth, there is in the interstitials, there are a number of tables that will talk exactly to you where you are fairly early in your career, feel like you're in the sweet spot in your job, and we'll talk you through what you can do. But what I would say as a practical matter is that when you're in the sweet spot, first of all, a caution, and then I'll give you some suggestions. Sometimes when we move into the sweet spot, because we're increasingly capable, because we're getting lots and lots and lots of opportunities, we can get distracted and distracted by another opportunity somewhere else for more money. And so we start job hopping, which can potentially lead to arrested development, meaning you're not ever completing this cycle. You just keep on jumping to new jobs. And so something to be aware of. But what I would say from there is that in order for you to be in that sweet spot and continue to thrive in the role that you're currently in, is to be understand this, be able to have a conversation with your manager, your direct supervisor, and be able to just talk through with them. It's very effective. We actually have a tool that you can take as well. But as a starting point, just here's the S-curve. Here's where I think I am on the S-curve. I think I'm in the sweet spot manager, where do you think I am? And then you're able to say, here's what I think I need to do. Here's what I think it's going to look like when I get into mastery. Do you agree with that? And they'll say yes or no, or I think you're actually in mastery already. It's time for you to go do something new. Or what oftentimes happens is they'll say, I think you're in the sweet spot. You'll feel like you're in mastery. And if you're in mastery, you know, you're bored, that's going to predict your behavior, not where your manager thinks you are. So that can lead to a conversation as well. But you can really use this as a tool to make sure you stay in the sweet spot as long as possible. But also for both of you to be planning when you do get into mastery, what are you going to do? What's that going to look like? What new thing are you going to take on? so that you can stay where you are. Because once you get into mastery, if you've been there too long and you start looking at other opportunities, you can't unsee those. And that becomes very difficult for retention to happen. So what I would say is use this S-curve as a way to think about your career, to manage the emotional pieces of it, understand that this is why you're exhilarated, and then use this as a tool to have conversations with your manager around development. And then the third thing I would say, Sarah Ann, is. We have a portfolio of curves. And so at any given time, you've got three projects that you're working on. What you want to do is optimize them. So you're going to have one, maybe two projects where you're in the sweet spot. If you've got one where you're in master, you always want to have one curve where you're at the launch point so that you can continue to grow and develop. And so you're optimizing your portfolio of curves with most of them in the sweet spot and then one or two at the launch point. And in mastery, and that will allow you to stay in the sweet spot longer. So I'll stop there. I'm actually curious what you're taking away from that, and then we can dive a little bit more deeply if it, if that's helpful. Yeah, I think what
2: I'm taking away is that when we think about this learning journey, it's not a static one. I guess that's number one. And number two, mm-hmm. it's I love how you articulated that in our learning journey there should be a portfolio of these S curves that are happening. It's not one. And that's all that there is. But, you know, there, there are many different S-curves. I think that's the way to put it. And you can be at different points of the S-curve during one particular time of your life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I know you said you wanted a, a practical example. So let me give you a practical example. So um there's a woman by the name of Yang Xu who works at Kraft Heinz. So they, they make the ketchup. And she was running treasury globally for Kraft Heinz. In treasury, very much at the top of her S-curve. And so now they have this predicament because she's at the top of the S-curve getting a little bit bored. But Kraft Heinz needs her to be at the top of the S-curve because they need her expertise. So what they did is they said, all right, we need you to stay here. This is going to be within your portfolio. This is the place that you're in mastery. But we're also going to bring some people into your team that you can delegate to. And at the same time, We're going to give you a new S-curve. We're going to add an S-curve to your portfolio where you're going to move to Amsterdam. We're going to have you focus on internal facing, more COO type of roles so that you can continue to develop. So now what was only in mastery, they added a curve at the launch point so she could balance out into the sweet spot, develop some more skills of really understanding the operations of the business, not just the external facing. Did that for a time moved into the sweet spot, got good at that. And then they said, all right, what we'd like to do now is take over m a globally. And so she's continued to jump to new curves. But what they did is by understanding that it's a portfolio of curves, you still have business needs. They were able to meet the needs of the business, as well as to meet her needs to continue to grow and develop. Such a
1: tangible example of what that portfolio curve could look like and i think it's inspiring me now to also think about what are some other sort of ways i can expand the portfolio of my learning curve as well mm. i don't know if it, if it's something that aligns with your theory but do all of these necessarily need to be career focused so where i'm coming from is that maybe oh. I, in my career i could be going on a particular s-curve but outside of my career like with the podcast i'm also on a different kind of mm-hmm. s-curve learning journey as well do having start, you know with the launch part it being really difficult starting so yeah. i don't know i guess it could also be looked at um from a work and non-work amalgamation
0: of of events perhaps <laughs> absolutely absolutely and so uh, let me just say two things and then i'll go to that so so when i made this comment about this portfolio the thinking behind that or the theory behind that is that you're looking at a standard bell curve distribution, right? And so you've got two in the sweet spot, one at launch point, one in mastery. And also if you look at project management or even look at neuroscience, we can only really sort of handle three or four projects or ideas at any given time. And so that's why when I'm thinking about this portfolio, you're looking at roughly four standard bell curve distribution Two in the sweet spot, one at launch point, one in mastery. But as you say, Janice, your life is a portfolio of S curves. Your life is a series of S curves. And so, one of the ways that you can think about this is if, for example, at work, you have been in the same role for three years, you're very much in mastery, you've got that covered, or you've got one project or most of your job, then you could take on something else. But it might also be if you're in mastery at work, if you've lived in the same place for five years. If your children are all grown, which is probably not the case for most of the people that are listening to this, but let's assume that for a minute, it's probably a good time for you to take on something pretty big and audacious at the launch point because you've got the capacity to do that. If on the other hand, this is probably more for the two of you, you've just started a new job, you've just moved to a new country, and you've just had a baby, probably not a good idea to decide that you're going to start running or or competing in triathlons because now all of a sudden you've got lots of launch points and nothing to anchor you in mastery. And so yes, absolutely, Janice, you can think of your life as a portfolio curves. And whenever you're feeling like things are out of balance, it's usually because you've got too many launch points, or you've got too much in mastery, and you're not optimizing for the sweet spot. So you can use this for your life. You can use this as you think about your job. And also, by the way, as you're thinking about constructing a team, you can think about do I have most of my people in the sweet spot, a few at the launch point, a few in mastery, you can use this in a lot of different arenas really really
1: great point and it ties in really nicely to this point of our conversation now where we talk about how we can accelerate our growth and learning Mm. and in your book Whitney you talk about the seven accelerants of personal disruptions could you briefly Mm. take us through these seven growth accelerants and how we can use it to speed growth along the s-curve I mean now that we've learned about how we can optimize it how we can make sure things are in equilibrium. Now, how then do we accelerate this
0: curve? We talked about the S-curve, and if you haven't already, you might have this metaphor in your brain or this visual image of a mountain. And so what you just described, Janice, is the seven accelerants of growth, this framework of personal disruption that allow you to move up this mountain, up this S-curve more quickly. The seven accelerants are, and I'll go through them quite quickly, is first of all, to take the right risks. We take a lot of risks, but what I want you to focus on is not taking on competitive risk, but taking on market risks. The competitive risk is you know that there's an opportunity, but there's a lot of competition around you. A market risk is you don't know if there's a market. You don't know if there's an opportunity, but if there is, there's very little competition. And this goes back to disruption theory where you're playing where no one else is playing. And so you want to think about how do I take the right risks in business, but also in your career. The second one, and there's a flywheel effect for this is, how do I play to my distinctive strengths? It's going to be a lot easier to play where no one else is playing when you feel strong. And so the challenge with strengths is sometimes we're not aware of what they are. But even when we are, we're sometimes we don't value them because they're so easy for us. How could they possibly be valuable? And yet, if you're going to really be able to focus on creating and not competing with other people and playing where no one else is playing, you want to play to your distinctive strengths. And those start to become a flywheel effect for you. The third one is to embrace your constraints. Um, It's easy to say, if only I had more time or more money or more expertise, then I could really move up this curve. But what we know from physics is that in order for you to be able to make progress, you need friction. And so um, think about the fact that whatever you think you don't have enough of, it may very well be that that is exactly what you need to create. That is exactly what you need to have momentum to move up the curve. Think about when you were in school. Would you have ever finished a class ever if you hadn't had a test or you hadn't had a final exam? Probably not. That was a constraint that allowed you to move forward. Number four is to examine your expectations. It's basically a dopamine management exercise And so when you find yourself saying things should be different, you're expecting things should be different rather than just saying, this is how things are. This is a constraint that I have. What am I going to do with this? And if you can have in your brain of, I understand what's going on with my expectations. I'm going to create with what I have. I'm going to move up that S curve more quickly. Number five, step back to grow. You've got to bring a fist back to punch. If you step back, you're going to be able to gain momentum. That's what personal disruption is about. Number six is to give failure its due, to leverage failure, and to recognize that failure actually isn't the problem because we all fail all the time. Recognize that the failure, there's something very tangible to be learned from failure. I've had lots of failures, bombing speeches, being fired, backing a business that imploded. These have all been opportunities, if I will let them, if I will not attach shame to them, to grow and to propel myself forward. And then number seven is to be driven by discovery to be willing to take a step forward, to get the feedback, and then adapt, recognizing that as you move along this curve, there's a wonderful piece of research by Amar Bide who said 70% of all successful new businesses end up in a place very different from where they started. Well, why would it be any different with our careers? And certainly um, for you that are you know, 25 or 30, you think your career is going to look like one thing, and it's probably going to look very, very, very different. But if you're willing to, to f- follow these accelerants of growth, it's going to be much, much better than you ever could have anticipated. So those are the seven accelerants of growth. Thank you for taking us through these seven
1: tools and for giving such a wonderful summary. Listeners out there, if you want to know more about these tools, please check out the book. But for the purposes of today, we are going to be diving in specifically to two of these tools. So on tool number two on playing to your distinctive strengths. So you've written about the importance of playing to our strengths while also pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone but we want to know how how do you find the fine balance between these two and how does that lead to growth
0: early in my career i was a banker and i was very good at building financial models very good not great what i was very good at was um building relationships with company owners eventually i was doing some coaching around that and so what i found though is that I'd gotten good at building financial models because I'd worked very hard at it, but it wasn't the thing that I was just like amazing at. I was good at it because I had worked at it, but I wasn't amazing at it. And so there was a tendency, and this goes back to valuing your strengths, is that I wanted to go do this thing. I wanted to go work in M&A, for example, because I'd worked so hard to build this financial model and look at me, I'm so proud of myself. And I wanted to go do that hard thing but I wasn't going to ever be able to make this outsized contribution. At the same time, I had people over and over and over again saying to me, Whitney, you're actually really good at coaching. I'm like, well, I don't want to do coaching because I'm really good at coaching and that's easy and that's not really hard like M&A. So the first thing is, is that we need to value what we actually do well. And then to your question, Janice, of how do we push ourselves? Well, we take what it is we do well And then we see just how good we can get in what we do well. So we say, all right, if I'm good at coaching, am I going to put myself in situations where I have to really stretch myself and see how great I can be at coaching? So it doesn't mean you don't do uncomfortable things. It doesn't mean you don't push yourself. It just means that you push yourself within the lane where you already have some genius because that's where you're going to be able to make an outsized contribution to the world. So know what you do well, value it, like truly value it, but then put yourself in situations where that thing that you do superbly well gets pushed and you can see what am I actually made of here? Let's see where the actual top of this curve is here. So that's how you balance the two.
2: I love how you spoke about valuing what your distinctive strength is, Whitney. And the thought that came to my mind is sometimes our strengths might be something that is so obvious to us because it's second nature, but we don't realize that it's not second nature to somebody else because it's not their strength. And we oftentimes take that for granted.
0: Absolutely. I, I remember I was having a conversation with Alan Mulally, who was the CEO of Ford, turned it around, took the stock price from a dollar to $18 and was talking people through his management system, like how he managed people and how he was able to be so effective as a CEO. And he made the comment, well, everybody knows how to do this. And we all looked at him and said, no, Alan, everybody does not know how to do this. And so that's actually always a clue for you when you find yourself saying, this is just common sense, or everyone knows how to do this. That is a signal to you that you've got a superpower that you're not aware of. And then you have to figure out how you're going to be empathetic because everybody doesn't know how to do it. But that's also a signal for you of this is a superpower. And so it's really important that you understand and recognize this and now leverage this thing that you do phenomenally well.
2: That's incredible advice, Whitney. And the second tool that we'd like for you to dive a little deeper in is on willingness to be driven by discovery. Now, we've Mm. heard you sit and write about the fact that personal disruption does require for us to launch ourselves into the unknown and discover our wave as we ride it, innovating as circumstances present themselves. But this we recognize that disrupting oneself often requires taking risks and embracing uncertainty, something that we've spoken about a lot. How can we then balance this with the need for, evidently, some sort of stability and security in our lives?
0: It's a great question, Sarah Ann, because I think that the pendulum swings where we we're like, all security. I'm only going to be in this job. I'm only going to stay here. Or, I'm going to jump off, you know. I'm going to bungee jump off this cliff. Like we go all the way, super, super risky, and it's much, much, much more difficult. And I will share the annals of Whitney's life, which this is this is what not to do. Where I'm working on Wall Street, I'm the equity analyst. I've been institutional investor ranked for eight years. Um, I wanted to do something new. They said we like you right where you are, and what I did, which was not a good idea, is I just quit. And I didn't have a job. So I jumped off the mountain. And that's when I went to do these entrepreneurial things. If I want to do a TV show and all these things, but I didn't really have a plan, like I didn't have a way to earn money figured out already. So I went from complete security to no security at all. So to answer your question, you do the very, very, very difficult thing, and that is doing both at the same time where you say to yourself, all right, I've got this one job right now. It's my day job. I'm at the top of the curve. I'm in mastery, really good at what I'm doing. I can feel myself. I can feel it. I can feel I'm I'm about to do something a little bit hasty, a little bit risky. I better introduce a launch point curve now. What is that going to look like? Well, I'm going to do a side hustle. I'm going to start seeing if I can Build a business now. So, people that oftentimes want to do sort of more encore career, this is not something that you all would do, but they want to be a consultant. Well, they start to figure out can I get a few consulting gigs on the side? Figure out the business model now. Will people pay me to do this thing that I think they'll pay me to do? Can I get something lined up with my current employer so that when I decide that I'm going to go off and do this thing, I've already packed myself a little bit of a parachute. So we don't go into this either or of I'm going to have complete security or no security at all. From the mountain of your security of where you are, you start packing yourself a parachute by doing some type of side hustle, or you have two years of savings in the bank, you become independently wealthy already, which I, I, I would actually very much um, advocate for when I say independently wealthy, meaning, well, yeah, you can do independently wealthy, but also have a couple of years of savings in the bank so that you can take these risks. So that's what I would say is that our brains tend to go to either or because that feels more certain. But the less risky thing to do is to find a way to do something in the middle, have that portfolio of curves, have the anchor of what you're already doing, try this other thing on the side, which is hard because it's exhausting. But that would be my advice.
1: That's really good advice and love your suggestion on the side hustling, which is a topic that we speak about quite a bit on our podcast as well and that people have been really curious to know more about. And you spoke to a lot of the the ones who might be at the mastery, the peak of their career. For those of our listeners who are at the launch phase, and we know this mm. phase can be one that is long and challenging, right? So how can, you know, how can we stay motivated and committed to our growth as someone who is in the launch point? And at that point, progress might be slow. Setbacks might occur. What would you Mm. say to encourage um, some of these listeners out there?
0: Okay, so I have a couple of suggestions. One is a little bit more detailed, but if you go to my book, Smart Growth, I talk about seven explorer, uh, as you say, explorer questions that you can ask yourself of, you know, as you're thinking about this curve that you're on and trying to figure out, okay, I'm doing this new thing. Is does this make sense to be here? There are things that you can ask yourself of you know, do I believe that this is achievable? And you don't necessarily need to believe it, believe it right now. You just need to believe that you could believe that it's achievable. So like you can get there in your brain. So we talked a lot about disrupting your mindset. Ask yourself questions like, is this familiar enough? but still novel enough that I'm excited about it, excited to do this new thing? Does it fit my identity? And when I say, does it fit your identity, meaning how I'm showing up in the world, how I want to show up in the world, how people perceive me to be showing up in the world. And if it doesn't fit my identity or how people perceive me, like they perceive me to be a lawyer and now I want to go run a tech startup, what am I going to do in order to make that identity shift? Because that's going to be a higher emotional cost for you to do. And then is the reward worth the cost that we just mentioned? And does this align with my values? And when you can answer all of those questions, they would suggest yes to those questions. It would suggest, you know what, this, this may be a right, a good curve for you. So you want to persist. Now, question you just asked, Janice, is once you've decided that you want to be on this curve, how do you persist when it's really difficult? And this is a, a very simple hack that I would suggest, as we talked earlier about Dopamine. When do you get dopamine? Well, you get dopamine when you beat expectations. What's a simple way to beat expectations? At the launch point, you set very simple, 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 laughably small goals. So you can build on the work of Jeff and Jamie Downs, where they talk about streaking, meaning having winning streaks, where you have an app and you say... Okay, I'm at the launch point of the curve. I don't know how to do this yet, but I'm gonna make one phone call to sell. I'm not gonna make 10 phone calls. I'm gonna make one phone call. Or I'm just gonna look up a person that I'm gonna talk to, to reach out to. So that you're making these very small goals that once you achieve them, it doesn't matter if the person said yes or no or anything, I just reached out. And now I reached that goal, I'm gonna get a little bit of dopamine, which is gonna allow me tomorrow to do something else. So Jeff and Jamie Downs work on streaking, you can look at James Clear's work on on atomic habits. But the hack is, is that you set such small goals, that even if it's 11 o'clock at night, and you haven't done it yet, like I have a goal that I'm going to do 10 squats every day. There are many times when it is 1055, and I'm doing 10 squats, but it's small enough that I can do it. Or... Um, you know, I'm going to read a book every day, I make it so small, I have to only read for a minute, I can do it. So by setting those small goals, it allows you to achieve something, it allows you to have some milestones, it allows you to get that dopamine that sustains you while you're at the launch point, until you either decide this isn't the right curve for me, I'm not going to pursue this particular project or you build up a, enough momentum that you tip into the sweet spot and you go into that place of fast. So those laughably small goals, get that dopamine, that's going to help you persist once you've made the decision that this curve makes sense to be on. Really actionable,
1: really doable, You know, little wins that our listeners out there can certainly explore. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, Whitney. And as we conclude, one question that we like to ask our guests at the end of every episode What is the one thing you have recently explored that surprised you?
0: I would say the one thing that I've recently done that surprised me is my husband's a college professor here in Lexington. and We live in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. And as part of his work, and then as part of our, our church and faith community, we get to be involved. I get to be involved with the students. And I made this commitment that I was going to look at building relationships with the students and find ways to connect with them and interact with them. And one of the things that I've explored is developing relationships. And when I talk to them, seeing if there are ways that I can support them as they're thinking about their career and what they want to do after they graduate from university. And I would say that the exploration for me is not so much the coaching, but just that willingness to just show up and be in this mix of this around people that are um you know in 20 21 22 years old and that has surprised me in a sense of how much delight it has brought me and how inspiring it is for me to be around people who are 21 and 22 and 23 and 25 years old of how resilient and they are but also just full of promise and full of optimism for the future. And I, I think that's what surprised me is that as people get older, there, there tends to be this divergence of they either get a lot more optimistic as they get older or they get very pessimistic. But in general, being around people who are in their early 20s, there's this general sense of exuberance and optimism.
2: What a wonderful and delightful way we need to end our podcast episode. It also brings me great joy to hear a very relevant and recent example of how you are playing to your distinctive strength of coaching <laughs> as well. And on that final <laughs> note, where can our listeners find you?
0: Well, I think one easy way is um if you're listening, then you like podcasts. And I have a podcast as well. It's called Disrupt Yourself. And so that's a very easy way to find me. Um, Another easy way is to, uh, you can email me at wj at the disruption advisors.com. If you have a comment or a question, or you'd love to explore how we might work together,
2: Thank you for that Whitney and you spoke to us today about disrupting our career for growth. You dived into the S curve of learning, where you shared with us insights on the launch point, the sweet spot, as well as mastery, which obviously gives us a map when we think about the emotional arc of growth that we are all on. And hopefully, it doesn't end at a particular stage or a particular age, and it's a continuous journey because we do know, and as you've alluded to, learning is the oxygen of human growth. You also shared about the seven accelerants of personal disruption. And in today's episode, we dived into to playing to your distinctive strengths as well as the willingness to be driven by discovery. And we want to really thank you for your insights and encouraging us to embark on having a portfolio of S-curves of learning, not just one. And finally, with having a litmus test for an individual when we think about what the growth upsides are for both our personal as well as our professional lives. So on that note, Whitney, Whitney are there any final words that you'd like to leave our audience?
0: Um, yes, I have two final words. Uh, one is, uh, that was a fantastic summary. Well done, you. <laughs> um, and thank you to both of you for being so well prepared. I, I think you know this. It's always feels like such an honor when someone's dived into your work and is able to respects it enough to ask and do that work. So I wanted to say thank you for that. And then I would say the final thing that I would encourage people to think about is that remember that when it feels messy and you feel a little bit scared and you feel a little bit overwhelmed and you feel a little bit discouraged, it's probably because you're on the launch point. and just remember, that this messiness it's it's normal this is how you're supposed to feel and my hope is is that for those of you listening is that you will continue as you go through life you can insulate yourself from doing new things increasingly you can but that you will build this muscle now today of navigating launch points so that you will continue to do it throughout your life so that your life can be rich and thrilling and satisfying, not just now, but when you're 80 and 90 years old.
2: Thank you for ending this episode on a very, very hopeful note, Whitney. Thank you so much for your time again. Thank you. If you stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends.
1: We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle explorethispodcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E, this podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every alternate Mondays at 8pm. See you then!